Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Keep the Faith brings you timely messages with in-depth spiritual analysis of current events in light of Bible prophecy so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what the news won't tell you. Here is another important message for our times. This is Pastor Hal Mayer. friends. Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry again. Thank you for joining us as we watch the unfolding events leading us to the fulfillment of prophecy. We are living in amazing times, and if you are paying attention to unfolding prophecy in current events, you are no doubt watching with fascination, as I am, to the amazing developments in our day that tell us that Jesus is coming soon. I hope you are carefully watching the transformation of Europe into a superstate or federation of states controlled by a centralized government. The Vatican wants this because it is key to resurrecting the Holy Roman Empire. It is a sort of United States of Europe that the Vatican wants to dominate politically and religiously. You have heard about the European Union for a long time, probably, but up until now it has been a loosely connected association of nation-states. The EU institutions in Brussels had only limited power. That is going to change now. The centralized government and constitution of the European Union officially began on December 1, 2009, when the Lisbon Treaty, essentially a constitution for the new Europe, came into force. Establishing a constitution for Europe's superstate was a tortured process, consuming eight years and numerous concessions. The Lisbon Treaty was the most recent attempt to get that constitution in place. Most recently, it involved two referendums in Ireland, which blocked the treaty at first and then passed it. But Rome finally got her way. The transformation of Europe is not merely creating a political union. Far from it. In reality, there is something more subtle, more ominous, and more sinister happening behind the scenes than most of us have recognized. Today I'm going to tell you the secret history of Europe. I'm going to tell you the hidden agenda of those that have orchestrated the rise of the European superstate. I'm going to tell you what they are planning for the future that most people cannot comprehend. The latest movements in Europe tell us of the fulfillment of prophecy. You can understand them only if you understand Bible prophecy. So get ready. As I have researched for today's message, I was shocked at how persistent and determined Europe's hidden leaders are to achieve their secret goals. You will be shocked too. It's all in plain sight, but it is shrouded in nice-sounding language and lofty platitudes. But before we begin... I want to say thank you for your prayers and support for Keep the Faith Ministry throughout 2009. As 2010 is over a month old already, I want to say how much we need your prayers this year. Great sweeping movements are taking place, and we need discernment, wisdom, and understanding. I also want to thank you in advance for your support as we dig deep into history, prophecy, and the modern world. Jesus is coming very soon, and we must prepare. The forces of evil are stirring, preparing for the last great crisis. They are working with all deceivableness of unrighteousness and are building up to the final war with Christ once again in the person of his saints. 
This final conflict is over the law of God. Jesus proposes to have a people who will live by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. They will not adhere to the traditions of men. They will live by God's whole law in spite of enormous pressure from friends, family, churches, governments, and societies. I pray that you are preparing to be part of that number who will represent Christ in all his glory in your character, even in the midst of great darkness and the final deception of the whole world. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we bow before you today asking for your Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. Keep us in your care. Help us see in the movements around us that Jesus is coming very soon. Help us to understand our place in the closing work of the third angel's message. We want to be part of the work of God in these last days here on earth. May Jesus reign in our hearts and minds today as we study some of the amazing events that are leading us to the final movements at the end of the world. In his precious name I pray. Amen. I didn't want to do a sermon on Europe quite so soon after the last one, but events there have been moving so rapidly and compellingly that I must keep you informed. I believe that much is going to happen in 2010 in Europe, and it should be very interesting to watch in light of prophecy. What you are going to hear today is perhaps more interesting than anything you've heard before concerning Rome's intentions for Europe. By the way, all of the documentation you may want is posted throughout the text of this sermon on our website. But first turn with me in your Bibles to the 13th chapter of Revelation. We need to see how what we are going to study today fits into end-time prophecy. We have studied this verse many times before. We have noticed that around the world there is a resurgence of papal popularity. We see that Rome's agenda is to regain control, not only of Europe, but of the entire world, and she is working steadily, patiently, and stealthily to accomplish it. Listen to these verses beginning with verse 1. The apostle and prophet John says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, and his seat, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Also notice verse 8, which says that all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. This is referring to the one world religion that Rome is trying to restore, not just over Europe, but over the whole world. The amazing thing about this beast, my friends, is that his deadly wound was healed. A beast in Bible prophecy is a world power. But this beast is a composite beast of many previous world powers. The various parts of this beast come from the same animals listed in Daniel 7, which represent four successive kingdoms. Revelation 13.2 is a summary description of the beast that comes up out of the sea. It has qualities of all the nations that preceded it, but this beast is different. 
He gains power and influence and is followed by billions of people who yield to his power and influence. This beast has power from the dragon, or Satan, we are informed, and this power leads the people to worship Satan, the dragon, by worshiping the beast. Notice verse 4. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast, and who is able to make war with him? In other words, the whole world wonders after the beast and worships it. There is no worldwide power or nation-state that involves worship of the power or nation-state itself other than the Holy See, or the Roman Catholic Church. And in so doing, the whole world worships the dragon, or the devil. And no one can make war with the Vatican. The nation-states of the world may make war between themselves, but they cannot make war with the Vatican. Only Jesus can make war with the papacy and win. Everyone else that does, loses. Most people can't see this because they don't have a clear understanding of prophecy nor of history. They have been educated in the, in the ecumenical movement. They have not become students of Scripture and they don't know how to study it. Moreover, most people are just so busy that they don't have time to diligently search the Scriptures for themselves to discern the voice of God. They just believe what they are told, and if they don't really believe it, they nevertheless do what they are told because it comes from a respected religious authority. As a result, current events go right over their heads. This is true of many Christian people, including their leaders in high positions. What is happening in Europe and other parts of the world doesn't seem to interest them. They are in a spiritual stupor. They will never be able to see it until it is too late, what Rome is planning for them. Now let me read to you a passage from the book Great Controversy, page 565 and 566. It shows the aims of Rome in becoming the ruler of the world. But Romanism as a system is no more in harmony with the gospel of Christ now than at any former period in her history. The Protestant churches are in great darkness, or they would discern the signs of the times. The Roman church is far-reaching in her plans and modes of operation. She is employing every device to extend her influence and increase her power in preparation for a fierce and determined conflict to regain control of the world, to re-establish persecution, and to undo all that Protestantism has done. Catholicism is gaining ground on every side. Now put that together with the following statement from the same book, page 616. Romanism in the Old World and apostate Protestantism in the New will pursue a similar course toward those who honor all of the divine precepts. The Old World referred to is Europe. and When Europe allows Rome to control her, we will see very dramatic movements in the rest of the world, too. The United States plays an important part in helping Rome gain control of the world, and right now the U.S. administration is working hard to help Rome make large and important gains toward peace with Muslims. But that's for another study. Today I want to show you what has just happened in Europe. Notice Revelation 18.7. This is talking about the punishment of Babylon the Great, which is another representation of the papacy. 
but I want you to notice the last phrase which gives the reason why she is going to be punished. For she saith in her heart, I sit a queen, and am no widow, and shall see no sorrow. In order for these prophecies to be fulfilled, the Holy See, which is the official legal name of the nation-state of the Vatican, has to become much more powerful. This she cannot do on a global scale unless she first regains control of Europe. This was her former estate, her patrimony, which was wrested from her by Napoleon and his generals in 1798, more than 200 years ago. I think it is interesting that though Napoleon and his general Berthier were atheists, they were actually doing God's will. Today the Catholic Church has over a billion adherents to her faith, scattered in every nation of the globe, which lays the foundation for her to rise to geopolitical and georeligious dominance. When she finally regains control of Europe, she will have much more power, standing, and credibility with the other nation-states of the world, which will help her extend her power everywhere. As of December 1, 2009, the European Union became a legal superstate, or a federation of states comprised of 27 nations. It has been in its progressive formative stages since 1957, when the leaders of the European nations signed the Treaty of Rome. This treaty was originally a trade treaty, though secretly these very leaders were working hard to build a politically united Europe under the Holy See. The vast majority of leaders that signed the Treaty of Rome were Roman Catholic. Over time, the European Union has gradually transformed itself into a political union. Eventually, it will remodel itself again as a religious union. And at that time, the resurrection of the Holy Roman Empire will be complete. We are well on the way to the third version of the Union, as you will see today. Let me read to you another passage from Great Controversy, page 581. God's Word has given warning of the impending danger. Let this be unheeded, and the Protestant world will learn what the purposes of Rome really are, only when it is too late to escape the snare. Remember that the Protestant world includes Germany, the Netherlands, Belgium, Switzerland, England, and all of Scandinavia. Though the Protestant world involves the United States and the other Commonwealth countries of the old British Empire around the world, I'm going to focus on Europe today because of the importance of Europe to end-time prophecy. I'll continue reading. Rome is silently growing into power. Her doctrines are exerting their influence in legislative halls, in the churches, and in the hearts of men. She is piling up her lofty and massive structures, in the secret recesses of which her former persecutions will be repeated. Stealthily and unsuspectedly she is strengthening her forces to further her own ends when the time shall come for her to strike. All that she desires is vantage ground, and this is already being given her. We shall soon see and feel what the purpose of the Roman element is. Whoever shall believe and obey the word of God will thereby incur reproach and persecution. If this prophecy isn't being fulfilled today, I don't know what is. Everywhere you turn, the Holy See is gaining political power, popularity, and prestige. 
but more importantly, she is gaining influence in governments and legislative bodies. The Lisbon Treaty, signed by Europe's leaders in Lisbon, Portugal, December 13, 2007, had been in the process of ratification for 23 months. When the last of the 27 nations of Europe finally ratified the Lisbon Treaty in November of 2009, Europe officially became a federation of states with a centralized government in Brussels. The last nation to reluctantly ratify the treaty and deposit the Articles of Ratification in Rome was the Czech Republic, the home of the great reformer John Huss. Note that the Articles of Ratification of the Lisbon Treaty from each of the nations are lodged and kept by the Italian government in Rome. It was the Italian government, in cooperation with the Roman Catholic Church, that hosted the summit that resulted in the signing of the Treaty of Rome in 1957, the foundational treaty of a united Europe. Now the treaty documents of the Lisbon Treaty are kept in Rome too, right under the watchful eye of the Vatican. Most people have no idea that the instigation of the Treaty of Rome and the European Union comes from the Roman Catholic Church. It is very important for you to understand this from a historical perspective. Otherwise, you will not really understand what is going on in Europe and how it relates to Revelation 13, 17, and 18. America Magazine, a Jesuit publication in the United States, made this very interesting statement to confirm this point on its blog of November 21, 2009. Speaking of Europe's new president, Herman Van Rompuy, the magazine said he is, in short, a bearer of the torch first lit by the Catholic architects of European unity, Digesperi, Schumann, and Adenauer, who, like Van Rompuy, were all Christian Democrats for whom faith and Europe went together. Notice that the Jesuit America magazine said it was their Catholic faith that led the founding fathers of the European Union to initiate the process of European integration. Their vision of a united Europe is really about resurrecting the Holy Roman Empire. Please note that the Jesuits just revealed the secret history of the European Union. But let me tell you a little about these three men. Alcide de Gasperi was the founder of the Italian Christian Democratic Party, which is the Roman Catholic Party. De Gasperi was one of the key planners in the early formation of what became known as the European Community, which later became known as the European Union. He helped organize the Council of Europe over which Hermann van Rompuy is now president. He also supported the Schumann Plan, which in 1951 led to the foundation of the European Coal and Steel Community, which was actually the starting point in the process of European integration, six years before the Treaty of Rome. De Gasperi is considered to be one of the founding fathers of the European Union. He was named president of the European Parliament in 1954, just before his death. Alcide de Gasperi was so appreciated by the Vatican that he was given the Karls Prize, or in English, the Charlemagne Award, in 1952. This award is given by the German city of Aachen to key people who contributed to the European idea and European peace. These terms are code for European integration. 
It almost goes without saying that these men believed that European peace can only come when Europe is united under Roman Catholic principles. That, by the way, is exactly the way the Vatican views it too. Before we go on, I need to explain to you the significance of the Karls Prize, or the Charlemagne Award. The importance of Charlemagne to the Roman Catholic Church cannot be underestimated. While Justinian laid the foundation for the Holy Roman Empire by his decrees in 532 and 533, and by defeating the Ostrogoths in 538, Charlemagne, or Charles the Great, was the dictator, king of the Franks, from 768 to 814 AD that united Europe under the religion of the Roman Catholic Church, which led to great bloodshed of those who were faithful to the Bible and the teachings of Jesus. His predecessor, Clovis I, was the first Roman Catholic king of Europe. He defeated the Visigoths in 508, which began the 1290-year period of prophecy in the book of Daniel. Aachen was the favorite residence of Charlemagne, and for a time it was the political center of Europe. It was the place of coronation of medieval kings, particularly German kings who were the strongest leaders of the Holy Roman Empire. The sponsors of the Karls Prize, the city of Aachen, refer to Charlemagne as the founder of Western culture, meaning Roman Catholic culture, and assert that under his reign, the city of Aachen was once the spiritual and political center of the whole of what is now Western Europe. As you can see, this city has deep and rich Roman Catholic symbolism to Europe. Without Charlemagne, the Roman Catholic Church would not have had the strength that it had from the 9th century onward. The first Karls Prize was given to the founder of the Pan-European Movement, a precursor to the European Union in 1950. And since then, the city of Aachen has given it to people all through Europe who have promoted the unity of Europe. It has also been given to some outside of Europe who were especially helpful in this project. To give someone this most prestigious Charlemagne Award suggests that they strongly sympathize with the idea of a Europe once again under the power of the Vatican, or have worked very hard toward its realization. Recent Karls Prize recipients include Angela Merkel, Chancellor of Germany, in 2008, Pope John Paul II in 2004, Bill Clinton in 2000, and even the Euro in 2002. Giving the award to the euro reveals how important a centralized economy is to Rome. Remember that control of people and nations necessarily involves control of their economies. By extension, control of the world would therefore involve control of the global economy. To be associated with Charlemagne through the award clearly expresses the intent of de Gasperi and the other founding fathers of the European Union to resurrect the old Holy Roman Empire. To show papal appreciation, de Gasperi is not buried in his hometown of Trentino, Italy, but in a Catholic basilica in Rome. Rome was so grateful to de Gasperi that they want to make him a saint. The process for his beatification was opened in 1993. Robert Schumann, a Frenchman, and not the famous German composer, 
was another founder of the European Union. He was one of the founders of the Council of Europe and NATO. Schumann did his secondary studies in Luxembourg at a former Jesuit school, then studied at a number of universities in Germany. Schumann, a Roman Catholic, became Prime Minister of France, and during the last days of his first administration, his government proposed plans that later resulted in the Council of Europe and the European Community Single Market. He also announced a coming supranational union for Europe. Schumann famously said, The European spirit signifies being conscious of belonging to a cultural family and to have a willingness to serve that community in the spirit of total mutuality, without any hidden motives of hegemony or the selfish exploitation of others. Our century that has witnessed the catastrophes resulting in the unending clash of nationalities and nationalisms must attempt and succeed in re reconciling nations in a supranational association. In other words, Europe would eventually become a superstate, where all citizens, societies, and the nations themselves would unite in a cultural family and mutually seek the benefit of the whole of Europe. The term cultural family includes, of course, the Roman Catholic religion. The purest form of that idea is virtually impossible, but the supranational state has now emerged. Schumann worked hard to lay the foundation for the European Union. He spoke about it continually in Europe and in North America. In September of 1948, he announced France's intention to work toward a democratic organization for all of Europe. Robert Schumann was also given the Karls Prize by the city of Aachen to commemorate his efforts to unify Europe under a resurrected Holy Roman Empire. The Holy See was so pleased with Schumann that they made him a knight of the order of Pope Pius IX, and after his death opened a beatification process for him too. The third key founding father of the European Union was Konrad Adenauer of Germany a Roman Catholic and member of the mostly Roman Catholic Christian Democratic Union. Adenauer became the first Chancellor of the Federal Republic of Germany, or West Germany, in 1949, and arguably the most powerful influence on Germany after World War II. Adenauer also became the Chairman of the Christian Democratic Union of Germany in 1950, Because of his influence and his four-term West German chancellorship, he was at the forefront of the planning that led to the Treaty of Rome and the European Union. He was instrumental in developing the German social market economy, which is essentially capitalism mixed with some elements of social welfare and Catholic social teaching. Because of Adenauer's policies, the foundation was laid to reunite both East and West German states, which has been a vital element for the revived Holy Roman Empire under Catholic leadership. In 1954, Adenauer also received the Karls Prize, the award given to those who worked diligently for European integration under Roman Catholic principles, to which Adenauer was unconditionally committed. Adenauer's vision, or life calling, was to work diligently to restore the old Holy Roman Empire. There were other important men who laid the foundation for a reunited Europe, but these three were certainly the main Catholic players in the process. 
But the important thing to remember is that their vision for Europe was a Roman Catholic vision. Let us now go back to the article from the Jesuit magazine America and learn about Hermann van Rompuy, Europe's new president. One interesting thing about Mr. van Rompuy is his Catholicism, about which he makes no bones, wrote America magazine. He was educated by Jesuits in Brussels, went on to the Catholic University of Louvain, Belgium, and in the 1980s wrote a book about Christendom as a modern idea. He is, in short, a bearer of the torch first lit by the Catholic architects of European unity, de Gasperi, Schumann, Adenauer, who, like Van Rompuy, were all Christian Democrats for whom faith and Europe went together. Well, let's see if we can say this in other words. Hermann Van Rompuy, 62, a Belgian Christian Democrat, is a strong Roman Catholic with a Jesuit education and a Catholic vision for Europe. Because of his Jesuit training, he has a strong European identity, believes wholeheartedly in European integration, and is certainly very committed to a united Europe in the Roman Catholic tradition, as opposed to secular tradition. He even wrote a book about Christendom, which literally means the kingdom of Christ on earth, as an idea that should be adopted by modern societies, in particular Europe. To resurrect the Holy Roman Empire, Rome needs a committed Roman Catholic with a Roman Catholic vision for Europe. This they have in the man who is Europe's new president, as suggested by the article in America magazine. Hermann van Rompuy, Prime Minister of Belgium, was relatively unknown outside of his home country until he was appointed to be the president of the European Council. He is a quiet man that works for consensus and knows how to diffuse political confrontations. He is very pragmatic and effective in behind-the-scenes negotiations and should not be underestimated, reported the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. He is also friendly to the U.S. and is a steadfast devotee of NATO. Mr. Van Rompuy's formation under the Jesuits in Brussels at the Jesuit St. Jan's Birchman's College, which was a high school, should not be overlooked. He speaks very warmly of them. He then earned his law degree and his master's in economics at Catholic University Louvain, the oldest still operating Catholic university in Europe. As a Catholic, he has often gone on religious retreats in the Abbey of Afflingham to renew his faith and meditate. Perhaps he also gets good counsel there concerning how to work in Rome's interests within Europe. Mr. Van Rompuy's ideas about Europe are actually quite familiar, particularly if you have been listening to what the Vatican has been saying for over half a century since the signing of the Treaty of Rome. Furthermore, as a member of the Christian People's Party in Belgium, or Christian Democrats, Rompuy would have ideas about the future of Europe similar to the Vatican. For instance, Mr. Van Rompuy, along with Angela Merkel, Chancellor of Germany, and Nicolas Sarkozy, President of France, is against the nation of Turkey joining the EU. Some suggest that he sees Europe as a Christian club with no room for Turkey with its mainly Muslim population. His view of the matter is actually quite similar to the view of Pope Benedict XVI. Both of them believe that Turkey's Islamic character would dilute the Christian character of the EU, said America magazine. 
Here is what Van Rompuy said in 2004. An enlargement of the EU with Turkey is not in any way comparable with the previous enlargement waves. Turkey is not Europe and will never be Europe, he continued, but it's a matter of fact that the universal values which are in force in Europe and which are also the foundational values of Christianity, meaning Catholic values, will lose vigor with the entry of a large Islamic country such as Turkey. Bringing Turkey into the EU would open the EU to a much greater flood of Muslims than it already has. This would be inconsistent with the Roman Catholic understanding of Europe as a Christian empire. And speaking of Mr. Van Rompuy's understanding of society, America Magazine said he has a sophisticated grasp of Catholic social doctrine. So if anyone can lead the EU into a resurrected Holy Roman Empire, it would be Van Rompuy. He is aligned with the Vatican and is prepared to work diligently in their interest to resurrect the Holy Roman Empire. He has the leadership skills and has the philosophy and vision that will make Europe what the Vatican wants it to be. Moreover, he is a seasoned politician. One political colleague commented, He knows what he's doing. That's why he's been opening his mouth only to breathe. Mr. Van Rompuy took an avid interest in the drafting of the European Constitution, which has now been replaced by the Lisbon Treaty. He saw it as the great adventure of the 20th century, says one of his political colleagues. He wants to see Europe grown and expand beyond its borders. Concerning his philosophy of Europe and society in general, Mr. Van Rompuy wrote, According to Catholic social doctrine, the political community is at the service of the civil society from which it is born. The state should make sure that the legal framework allows the social actors, societies, associations, organizations, and so on, to carry out their activities in total freedom, in order that the interaction between freedom of association and the democratic way leads in the direction of the common good. In other words, the state is subject to the society that forms it. If that society is a Roman Catholic society, then the government should give the church and its leaders freedom to work for the common good within the society. This includes the laws of the land, the economy, the justice system, the social infrastructure, and the religious life of that society. In other words, what Van Rompuy is really saying in practical terms is that the Holy See should control all these aspects of European society. The government is responsible to work on behalf of the Roman Catholic social principles. All of these ideas involve political exchange. Rome is saying that she wants to be in the center of that political exchange. This idea of the government and the church working for the common good is code for Catholic dominance of the EU. Rome knows that if she gets the EU to consent to this social framework, she will be the master of all of Europe. If the EU eventually legally recognizes the Roman Catholic faith as the faith of the whole Union, the Holy See will demand that she guide those nation-states in the direction of the common good, as defined by herself. This is the goal of the papacy, and it is the goal of the current leadership of the EU. This would certainly include Sunday laws. Already, Rome has tried to get the EU to upgrade the Sunday laws of Europe in 2008 and 9, 
and in late 2009 she successfully defended Sunday closing laws in Germany before the German High Court. No doubt she will keep at it, particularly now that the EU is led by one of her strong supporters. With Van Rompuy, Rome has a man in position to move this process forward with speed if circumstances are right. Moreover, Van Rompuy, a trained economist and a former Belgian central banker, wants to raise taxes to fund the new centralized EU government in Brussels. Within days of taking office in January, the former Belgian prime minister will put his weight behind controversial proposals already floated by the commission's head, Jose Manuel Barroso, for a new euro tax, wrote the UK Telegraph. Mr. Van Rompuy set out his plans on euro taxes during a private speech at a recent meeting of the Bilderberg Group of top politicians, bankers, and businessmen. The group officially meets in secret, said the Telegraph, but when selected details of Van Rompuy's remarks leaked out, his office was forced to issue a public statement on its behalf. The financing of the welfare state, irrespective of the social reform we implement, will require new resources, he said. The possibility of financial levies at European level needs to be seriously reviewed. Now let us put two and two together. The European Union is a Roman Catholic project. The EU will likely tax the people to support Europe, or more precisely, the Roman Catholic Church in its takeover of Europe. Revelation 18 tells us repeatedly that the merchants of the earth, of which Van Rompuy is one, are in financial league with the Vatican. These powerful merchants work with this spiritual and political superpower to make themselves rich while making Rome powerful. Roman Catholic Van Rompuy, an economist and financier, is one of those merchants of the earth who will have a lot of say in the economy of Europe. He is already in league with Rome to support Rome's agenda in Europe by taxing the people to fund the Catholic-inspired superstate that will eventually secure Europe again for the papacy. Little do the citizens of Europe realize it. By the way, Van Rompuy, in his acceptance speech, said he would maintain absolute discretion with the media. What does that mean? It means that he will not tell everything he is doing to the press. Much of his activities will probably be kept secret. That's why it is important to understand prophecy, because prophecy reveals what the goals of these collaborators really are. Let us remember the prophetic goals of the Vatican concerning the future. Rome is working for a universal religion, universal worship, and eventually a universal Sunday law. We read this in Revelation 13, verse 8, which says, All that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If the Vatican is ever going to achieve that level of power, there first has to be globalized politics and globalized economy. These two pillars of Rome's achievement are essentially in place and rapidly gaining power and synergy. Rooted in the UN, the global political machine has been operating with increasing power since its creation in the years shortly after World War II. 
In more recent times, the economic crisis has given the kings of the earth and the merchants of the earth the excuse to centralize the management of the economy away from the dominance of the U.S. dollar and U.S. geopolitics and into the hands of globalized institutions, such as the IMF, the World Bank, and other internationalist organizations. This is all playing right into the hands of Rome's prophetic destiny. Once these are in place, and once matured, Rome will have the opportunity, perhaps precipitated by another type of crisis, to establish a world religion. Rome has her own basket of issues to sort out before she can become the mistress of the world. They include legal independence from Italy with her own laws, namely canon law, judicial oversight of the laws of Europe and other nations like the U.S., mature ecumenical relationships with Islam, as well as control over her European estate. Remember, Rome is seeking global dominance, not merely European dominance. In recent years, we have seen how the Vatican has masterfully manipulated the United States. We have also seen how the Pope has mastered international politics and particularly Islamic relations. Let us remember that steady and stealthily, persistently, Rome is working toward her goal of global control and a global religion. Mr. Van Rompuy is a globalist politician and is very dedicated to global rule. One of the members of the European Parliament openly spoke about Van Rompuy's dedication to globalism on November 11, 2009. Is it possible, said Mario Borghesio of Italy, that no one has noticed that all three EU presidential candidates, one of which was Rompuy, frequently attend Bilderberg or trilateral meetings? Apparently, Borghesio isn't happy with the influence of these secret organizations on the European Union. Some people think, my friends, that these organizations are fictional or that they have little influence, but at least one member of the European Parliament is concerned that they have way too much influence. Van Rompuy regularly attends the secret Bilderberg and Trilateral Commission meetings. The next day, on November 12, he actually attended a secret Bilderberg dinner to promote his candidacy for president of the EU. It was there that he made a speech about his tax proposals. Mr. Van Rompuy attended the Bilderberg dinner, wrote the UK Telegraph, at the invitation of Vicomte d'Avignon, a former European Commission vice president and a leading EU federalist. The setting was the highly symbolic castle of the Valley of the Duchess, or Chateau de Valduchis, where the EU's founding Treaty of Rome was negotiated in 1957, and later the venue for the first ever European Commission meeting. Among the diners was Henry Kissinger, the former U.S. State Secretary and Nobel Prize winner who started the debate that led to the creation of an EU president after he famously asked, Who do I call if I want to call Europe? You should know who the Vicomte is. The Vicomte, or Viscount, is the head of a titled noble family and is one of the most elite of all. Etienne Viscount d'Avignon is president of the Bilderberg Steering Committee and chairman of the Bilderberg Conference. He is an honorary minister of state of Belgium and on the Crown Council. D'Avignon is very connected internationally on committees, institutes, and businesses and social organizations dedicated to promoting European integration. 
The Viscount oversaw the process of the adoption of the euro. He is the elite of the elites. He is a Roman Catholic, as are almost all Belgian nobility. He was one of the founders of the original institutions of the European Union, way back when there were only six member countries working together toward European integration. This man's relationship to the EU goes all the way back to the very beginning. Also, in case you didn't know it, Henry Kissinger, a Jew, is a well-known globalist and papal consultant on international affairs. He has been a strong advocate of a federalized Europe and has even been awarded the Karls Prize in 1987. Herman Van Rompuy's Catholic vision for global governance came through in his acceptance speech as president of the EU Council. It was very revealing in light of Rome's universal ambitions. 2009 is the first year of global governance, he said, with the establishment of the G20 in the middle of the financial crisis. The climate conference in Copenhagen is another step towards the global management of our planet, he said. The Vatican is thankful for Van Rompuy. Even if the global international organizations and systems aren't mature yet, he will certainly help develop them. Even though they aren't yet truly global, their formation is well underway, and they are starting to function. Friends, what we can see by all this is the masterful but mostly hidden hand of Rome. Listen to this statement from the book Great Controversy, page 235. It describes how the Jesuits worked to control whole societies. Under various disguises, the Jesuits worked their way into offices of state, climbing up to be the counselors of kings and shaping the policy of nations. Is it possible that the Jesuit order is doing it again in modern times? Is it possible that the Jesuits have worked their way into offices of state and have become the counselors of rulers, shaping the policy of nations? I'll read another sentence from the same paragraph. Look what happens when the Jesuits influence the policies of nations. The Jesuits rapidly spread themselves over Europe, and wherever they went, there followed a revival of popery. Remember, my friends, the purpose of the Vatican is to develop the power to implement one-world religion. This will certainly happen again as Rome moves rapidly toward reaching her goal. The European project is so important to the Jesuits that they have even set up an office specifically to work with the leaders of the European Union to help them resurrect the Holy Roman Empire. It is called the Jesuit European Office. Let me read to you some of the information posted on their website. The Jesuit European office serves politicians through relationship and dialogue, as well as advocacy about issues. This nice-sounding statement no doubt covers a multitude of activity by the Jesuits in high places. The Jesuit European office has a couple of key priorities, one of which is the continued development of a European consciousness. In other words, they are working to get the people of the individual nations of Europe to see themselves as Europeans rather than Germans, Italians, French, etc. This is important in order that the people will not resist the resurrection of the Holy Roman Empire. I'll continue reading. The growth and development of the European project and the search for its adequate spiritual, moral, political, and legal foundations caused the Jesuit European office to share in the discussion and exploration of the fundamental vision behind the European construction. 
This is talking about the construction of the new Holy Roman Empire. In other words, this is telling us that the Jesuits are determined to be at the center of the discussion and planning for the future of Europe. Reading on, the Jesuit European office, with offices in different parts of Europe, will pay special attention to candidate countries and neighbors of the EU. This work is done with Catholic and ecumenical partners, where possible, in a context of inter-religious and intercultural dialogue. So, through the ecumenical connections, the Jesuits are using the other churches and religions to help Rome regain control of Europe, including new countries working toward entry into the EU. Reading on. The multidimensional concept of solidarity is a foundational concept in Catholic social thought and is prominent in the European Union's own self-image. It will serve as a unifying factor for the work of the Jesuit European office and as a criterion for discerning its future engagements. In other words, solidarity between nations, languages, and cultures, the very basis of the European Union, will be used by the Jesuits to strengthen support for Rome. Unless a project or effort promotes solidarity and harmony with Jesuit priorities, it is not important to them. The Jesuit European office has methods by which it proceeds. They include personal contacts and relationships with officials and decision-makers at all levels, helping them to integrate their professional tasks with the ideals of justice and peace, and stimulating those who are Christian to grow in the faith that does justice, assisting people to a deeper sense of what it could mean to belong to Europe, and where appropriate, enriching these contacts with Ignatian practices helpful for their personal and professional lives, and sharing with them the gift of discernment. In other words, the Jesuits work with officials and decision-makers, which are the leaders of government, lawmakers, bankers, economists, etc., to work toward Roman Catholic principles of justice and peace, which can include every area of life and society and working with Catholics in office to practice their faith by acting or voting in harmony with Catholic social teaching. Moreover, it is the Jesuit mission to weave Ignatian spirituality into the lives and thinking of the leaders of government wherever possible. Furthermore, the website says that the Jesuit European office is involved in networking with those in the Ignatian or Jesuit family and beyond who can enhance or challenge the perspective of the European institutions, or who can give authentic voice to those in need. The European Jesuits aim to bring together decision-makers, experts, and people working in the field. In other words, the Jesuit European office is involved in helping to open doors of opportunity for politicians who work with Rome through networking and close doors for those who don't. Their mission includes challenging anything in the government of Europe that is not in harmony with Rome's agenda. The Jesuits are very good at networking and putting their own people in high office. Van Rompuy is probably one of those people. Of course, there are other candidates. There has to be some sort of choice. But in the end, the ones promoted to positions of huge responsibility have to be people who will promote the goals of Rome. No doubt the Jesuits work very hard behind the scenes to get their man in position as Euro-president. Friends, the secret hand in Europe's history is now clearly revealed. The hidden agenda is now open to see. 
The Vatican is working behind the scenes to place herself on the throne of the world, to be its queen and its mistress. It is not always easy to document the Vatican's interaction in geopolitics, but today you have seen the obvious connections that reveal Rome's ambitions and intentions placed in their prophetic context. It is a sober time to be alive. I hope you are taking note of this and are preparing your family for the crisis that is coming upon God's people in the last days. You cannot go along with the required worship in the coming one-world religion. If you do, you will forfeit your eternal life. The coming crisis over worship is really a crisis over loyalty to the law of God. May God's grace be upon you. Love Jesus with all your hearts. Seek Him daily for your spiritual strength and make sure you have His Holy Spirit in control of your life at all times. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we see the step-by-step -step process going on in the world around us to control everything in one central place. We recognize that we are very near the end of time. It is your purpose to prepare a people to live in the sight of a holy God without a mediator after the close of probation and in the midst of powerful pressures to compromise. May our lives be purified and made righteous by your grace. May we have your presence and power so that we may have victory over our sins. We will be eternally grateful for these blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.
We hope you have been greatly blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean much to us. Thank you for your support. The song you have just heard is entitled, O Lord Most Holy, sung by Jennifer Buttery. It is recorded on a new CD with other beautiful hymns called Seekers of Your Heart, published by Keep the Faith Ministry.